Welcome to the Beach Grove United Methodist Church podcast, where you can hear our Sunday morning sermons in audio form and take them wherever you go. A reminder that if you want to watch the entire service, our services are available on our YouTube channel linked in the podcast notes. We would love it if you would subscribe to the podcast so that new sermons come into your feed as soon as they are available, and you can do this using your favorite podcasting app. We would love it if you would help to support the missions and ministries here at Beach Grove through your tithes and your offerings. A donation link is also linked in the notes below. And lastly, find us on Facebook and Instagram to follow along with all the fun things happening at Beach Grove, whether you live in Suffolk, Virginia or not. We hope you enjoyed this week's message and please don't forget to share it with others. message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we were walking in darkness, we lie and do not know what is true. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This is the word of God for the people of God. Holy and gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each one of our hearts be holy and pleasing to you, that, for your, that through your word for us this day, we would continue to grow in our understanding of the sacredness of the meal of communion, and Lord, that even more deeply we would grow in our grace for you, our understanding of grace and living out that grace each and every day. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we have been unpacking the sacrament of communion. Again, this is a a non-communion week here at the church, so we will not be practicing the meal this week, but yet we are still talking about it going through this Lenten season. And the way that I've kind of structured this sermon is based off of the liturgy for communion. And so if you were to open up your hymnals right now to page eight in your hymnal, you would see starting there a service of word and table one. Uh, we actually have four of them in the hymnal. You feel free to, to flip through and, and look at them if you so desire. Each one of them can, contains their own little nuances. Um, but the first one is really the, the most exhaustive. It's the one that we use most regularly here at our church. Um, occasionally, I will change some language around depending on how well I remember it off the top of my head when I'm doing it. Um, but as you will see, as it goes through the liturgy, uh, most of the parts of the liturgy break down to a lot of questions that we often have around communion. And one of the the biggest questions uh, that I get, or another big question that I get after last week's talk of invitation, is around this idea of the sacredness of the meal, right? This is a very sacred time. That's why we call it a sacrament, because embedded within that word sacrament is an understanding of sacredness. And I often will uh, convey to people the, the irony with which we use the word sacred, not because the meal is not sacred, 
but because of the way that the meal is treated across the different and various denominations of the church. You see, if you were to practice communion here, and then you were maybe to go to uh, Glebe Episcopal and practice communion there, or Berea and practice communion there, or any other church, it might look different in each and every one of the places. And so the question that I often get asked is, why is this meal sacred, but why is it treated differently by different groups of people? You see, if you have this understanding of what does sacred mean. You have several uh, denominations, several uh, groups of Christians, like uh, some Baptist churches, some Anabaptist movements like the Mennonites, uh, some, some Pentecostal churches. They don't even call it a sacrament. They call it an ordinance. It is a, a practice of faith. And yet the sacredness of the meal does not get diminished. You have people like the United Methodists who believe in an open table, that anybody who is willing and, and ready and in that mindset to come is, is open to coming to the table. And then you have other denominations like the Catholics who reserve the table specifically for members. Does this mean that anybody treats it not as sacred as another denomination? No. It means that we each and every one of us bring, this, bring our own understanding of how we are in community together into this meal. Now, here at Beach Grove, I will talk about communion from a United Methodist perspective. Um, we are a United Methodist Church after all. Um, that does not diminish the witness that is offered by any other denomination. But you see, when we talk about sacredness, we talk about the manner in which we come forth to the meal. When we talk about what makes this meal sacred, we talk about the role of God and us in the meal. Right, last week we talked about God being the primary actor in communion, and really not just communion, but both of the baptisms that we have within, our, within the United Methodist Church, um, sorry, both the sacraments we have in the United Methodist Church, baptism and communion, we believe their sacredness is embedded within God, who is the actor within these sacraments. We believe that God acts in the moments of grace and the experience of grace within both the meal and, and within the water and the sacraments. And yet that does not negate us from our role, the role that we play. God may be the primary actor, but God is not the sole actor when it comes to communion. God is not the only actor. And if we look at our role, what we do, what we take part in in this meal, when we move into this second part of our liturgy, that is, we have moved beyond the invitation, we have felt welcomed to come to the table, now we take it upon ourselves in acknowledging the love that God has for us, to engage in repentance, to engage in a manner that allows us to recognize the work that God has already done in our lives, right? We do not participate because we are any one way or another. We, we participate because we know the work that God will offer through the meal. And you might remember in the invitation that we talked about last week, is that Christ invites, right? Christ invites all. And then there was probably that one part that many times we sometimes get hung up on when we talk about having an open table, right? Christ invites all who earnestly repent 
of their sins. And many of you may be wondering then, why do we allow people in the United Methodist Church who are in yours or other person's minds sinning to come to the communion table? Right, if we believe in this idea of the open table, if we believe that anybody should be able to come to the table, if we believe that the work of God can be done within anybody, then who are we to deny someone from coming to this table? Does it make the United Methodist understanding of communion, the Methodist practice of communion, or I should say the practice of communion in United Methodist churches any less sacred than our brothers and sisters in Christ in the world? And again, I, I say no. And you may be thinking, well, Pastor, but you're letting anybody come. What about... What about people who, who, who are unrepentant of their sin? What about people who, who don't believe in God? What about people who, who maybe they have bad feelings towards God, right? You, you might have these thoughts. And, and here's the cool thing is, is embedded within the church is this sense and nature in which the sacrament of communion has been seen as what we would term a converting ordinance. Now, again, we getting, I'm not going to explain the difference between ordinance and sacrament. It gets very convoluted at most points in time in Christian history. But John Wesley believed that, that communion could be a converting, a converting ordinance. John Wesley believed that within this sacrament, there was an opportunity for someone to meet, know, understand, and acknowledge the love that God has had for them, right? We talked about pervenient grace, that grace that comes before and John Wesley believed that the sacrament of communion, in both the witness and partaking in the sacrament, that someone could see, know, and understand God's love. And so when Methodism started to uh, come into America and started to define and identify who they were, they began to latch on to this understanding that Wesley got both from his Anglican roots and got from his Moravian German roots as well is this idea that in this meal there's an opportunity for someone to meet, know, and understand God's love. But he noted that that took place throughout the entirety of the meal. And so no, like we, we don't deny people the opportunity to take communion but we do lead them in a liturgy that brings them to a place where they would feel called to come forward. And not just the individual person, but the communal gathering as well. And so we take this into consideration, right? We look at this scripture here in 1 John and we consider what is happening in that prayer of confession that we go through. I'll read that in a little bit. And we hear John or the writer here in 1 John begin to say, or not begin to say, but this is actually towards the end. So if you're looking at your um, notes there, John 1, 1 John 1, 9. And, and the writer here writes, If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so when we read that verse, when we read, if we confess our sins... Then, then the God who is faithful and just is going to forgive us. And so what is the first question that we come up with here? Well, well, plainly, what is sin? Right? What is sin? 
And so um, here we go. I'm going to nerd out for a little bit. I invite you to maybe come along for the journey. Um, I'm, I'm going to make it brief. But the Greek word that is used here for sin by John and by other writers in the New Testament is hamaratia. Okay? I've now confused everybody. Great. But here we go. It means, literally means from the Greek, it means to miss the mark. And it was a term that was, that was not just used by, by churchgoers when it comes to sin. It wasn't just used by early Christians, but it was used in athletics as well, specifically in archery. When an archer would miss the mark. And then when we talk about repentance, we talk about the Greek word metanoia, which again is from archery because the archer in missing the mark, in sinning, would have to then reorient themselves towards the mark to be able to hit it. Right? And so I think when we look at sin, we look not at any one action, any one thing that causes us to sin. Rather, we look at missing the mark of who God desires us to be. Now, to dive a little bit deeper, because that's a very vague definition, right? God's desire is that the kingdom nature that reflects the spiritual image of God, we are created in. And so God wants in us people who live within that manner of grace and love that were offered to us. And so when Jesus talks about sin, when the early church folks talk about sin, when God talks about sin, it is discussed in a way of missing the mark of who we are called to be. And if we read that prayer of confession that we, that, you know, we'll, we'll read it here today. We, we do it even when we don't have communion. Merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. We have not loved our neighbors and we have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray. Free us for joyful obedience through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Right? Notice within that prayer that the image of God is set, marked, and defined, right? We are seeing within this prayer the image of God that we have been stamped with in our own creation. And when we break it down line by line, we see the way in which we are called to not just confess, but to reflect. Confession, reflection, we look and we see within this prayer that it becomes important for us that this act becomes a transformative act. It's not an act of guilt. We're not trying to pray a confession to make us feel guilty for how we think we have sinned. I mean, sometimes it might help us to feel a little bit guilty for the sins and evils of the world. Maybe we would actually feel like correcting them. But it's not here to make us feel guilty. It's, make, it's, it's there to make us know and understand the work that God is doing within this meal. The, the grace that God is offering. And it's offering us an opportunity to realize what work God is doing. To realize what we have done. 
to realize as a community that we move better together when we move together in God's love. And so as a community, we unite, we come together, and we confess what we have done. Lord, we have failed to love you. We have failed to love your creation. Lord, we have not done your will. We have failed to uphold this image. And Lord, please forgive us. That as we as a community come and dine together with Christ, that our hearts, minds, and spirits would be transformed. So that when we leave this table, when we depart from this table, Lord, that we would take this table with us. Now, there's a heavy table, so it might need to be all of us together. (laughs) And so it brings up in our minds how we treat this prayer. Yes, there is a manner of reflection and understanding as to ways in which we have failed to uphold the kingdom. But it is an invitation to do better. Not one to feel guilty about our past, but one to know that we have messed up and Lord, that we want to move into the future. Because the next thing that John talks about, actually, you know what? I've taken John backwards and so we start at the end of this passage. Now we're going to move back to the beginning. Actually, we're just going to move. John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then he goes on in verse 10. He says, if we say we have not sinned, we make a liar and his word is not in us. And when we say his word, we mean who, of course? Jesus. Jesus, because in his word, we see Jesus, right? We, we learned that from John's gospel. The word was God and the word was with God. And so we see if, if, if we come in here and we confess our sins, but our lives are not transformed, we don't, don't go out, we don't do better, we don't do that kingdom building work that God has called us to, then what have we done? We've made a liar of Christ. And this is where the gravity of the situation of sin really gets overblown because then we try and come at it and we try and say that sin is this, 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 and this. We try to put pinpoints on the sin so that we can find that one part of our life that we need to correct, whereas God is talking to each and every one of us. And God is trying to get us to understand that we are not individually the kingdom of God. We are communally the kingdom of God. And so as we continue to work, grow, and mature in our faith together, God calls us all to come together, to recognize the way that we have all fallen short of the glory of God and to say, God, I can do better. I can make this world a better place. Friends, it's not just our willingness to confess our sins. It's our willingness to recognize the sins and evils of the world that are all around us. Right? We demonize people in our world, thinking ourselves mighty and pious over others. And yet we fail to recognize that it causes us to miss the mark of who God calls us to be. We condemn, we judge, and yet we miss the evil that is right in front of our faces. We fail to recognize the pain, the hatred, the suffering, the oppression, the systemic injustices that cause us, that we participate in both complicitly and implicitly. And friends, we fail, we miss the mark of who God calls us to be. But friends, that is not the message of the table. And that's not a reason to not come to the table. Acknowledging we've missed the mark, that's a healthy form of relationship. (coughs) 
When I was growing up, on, I would go to Christmas Eve at the, the Catholic Church in Richwood, West Virginia with my aunt and uncle and uh, my uncle's family, and, and they would always joke that if my uncle's mother, Miss Mary, was not going up for communion, then whoever would have been worthy of communion? <laughs> and yeah, it was said in jest because she was the matriarch of the community, but it often got me thinking that we're all worthy of it, right? I said it early on. We come to the table unworthy. That's why we confess. That's why we have this prayer of confession, because we acknowledge to God, God, I have messed up. I have missed the mark. Lord, I have not done what you have called me to do. I have looked at your creation. I have looked at your people. And Lord, I have failed. And in my mind, I add, but I know that coming to this table shows me that you love me. And it shows me that you want me to live in a manner of peace and mercy with all humanity. Right? That's why we add this secondary bit. I know it's, it's, uh, it's like 45 minutes into my sermon and I finally get to peace. So buckle in. We're going to be here. No, I'm kidding. But it's what leads to it. Confession leads to peace because confession is an opportunity for us to acknowledge what we have done wrong and commit to doing better. Right? We've missed the mark. We've gone off to the left. We've scored zero points on our first arrow. And as we get ready to line up with that second arrow, we think to ourselves, what is the thing that I did wrong with that first one? Is it a windy day? Did I maybe aim a little bit too high? Where do I need to aim to make sure that I hit the mark? Right? That repentance, that orientation towards God. We're not orienting away from anything else. We're orienting towards God. So as we're going through, as we're walking through life, our hearts, minds, and spirit are focused on God's peace. And to round it all about, we, back, we go back to chapter, verse 5. That God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. That God is the way for us to truly see how we live and exist. Not as an individual, not even just as this small beach grove community. And I say small, not because we are small, we are mighty friends, amen, but because we are just one community in the great kingdom. One community. And so we proclaim, we confess, and we come together because we know the work of peace that God is calling us towards is greater than any calling we could ever receive. We know the grace that God offers us is greater than any grace that we ever receive. And the table is an opportunity to be called towards it. It's like I said last week, it knocks us into our senses. It resets us in this world. That's why we practice it. That's why we come together. Because even if we have been having just the worst week of our lives, and we've all been there, I'm sure, we know that we can come to worship, that we can come to the table, and we can say, God, I messed up. But I'm going to come forward and I'm going to receive because I know that you are doing great and amazing things through me. Right? How do we miss the mark? How can we turn towards God? Being justified, being sanctified through God's grace. Amen. Amen. <clears throat>